Welcome to this week's Eccentric Minute, brought to you by Eccentric. Our first exercise here in the Eccentric Minute is the K-Box Squat. This is the granddaddy of all of them, guys. One that we use at all levels of our training with a vast array of athletes. A couple big tips. I like to use a, something for our hands to support it. Make sure that strap is completely taut to the top. Don't leave it short. Don't leave it long. What I really like the most about it, guys, the iso-inertial wheel, we're going to use this with other squats as well. The other squats are working to depth. These, we're going to get to an athletic position and work our way up. Push hard and make sure you're fighting to hit that breaking force. As we cut reps, we usually cut depth as well to make it a little bit more transferable to what we do. This is an awesome exercise that I can't recommend enough. Throw it in your training. It's going to be great for you and your athlete. I really hope you enjoyed this week's Eccentric Minute. Make sure you check them out at eccentric.com to find out everything you need about the K-Box and the K-Pulley. Being a strength and conditioning professional requires constant pursuit of better knowledge, better methods, and better means. But what if there was a place where strength and conditioning coaches could learn from some of the most innovative practitioners in the world, such as Jeff Moyer, Lachlan Wilmot, William Wayland, James the Thinker Smith, and Kirwenham Flat? Well, you can find multiple lectures from each of these top-level coaches and a few lectures and examples from yours truly as well, all in the Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network is going to bring you well over 100 different lectures from some of the top practitioners in the world to be your one-stop shop for your continuing education and professional development. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com slash today and get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. That's strengthcoachnetwork.com slash CVASPS to get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. I look forward to seeing you in the Strength Coach Network. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, we got an awesome talk. I got to sit down with Chase Campbell and we just sat there and we were talking all things training. We're going to talk about working around tendon issues with basketball players, some reflections on this past season, and the good and bad that we saw in our training. And then we're going to run down the rabbit hole of unilateral versus bilateral training and what value he has found from going from being in one of those two camps to staying on the fence and really going to the answer of, it depends. This is really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's get right to it. What's going on, brother? How you doing? I'm all right, man. How are you? What's up, Roos? I'm doing well. What's up? What's up, Roos? Dan just jumped in. Hey, Roos is in. What's going on, buddy? Can't, can't, we all can't get together when we're in the same damn hotel, but we can figure out how to do this, you know? That's I'd say, well, that's my fault. That's all right, man. We were all busy that week. Allegedly. For that day and a half. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, man. How's, how you doing? Good, man. Just... Dealing with all this stuff going on right now and just trying to stay busy and yeah. not go insane. Yeah, dude, no doubt. But I think that we should talk about something different. And I'm hoping, uh, is it okay to play through knee tendonitis? Yeah, why not? Um, sure. <laughs> go ask any college basketball player in the country right now. Yeah. Um, and how do you deal with it? <clears throat> A lot of different ways. Yeah, dude, that's kind of loaded. I don't know. I mean, it depends on who you ask right now, right? Like, I guess like the the sexy thing is like those iso holds for mm -hmm. tendinopathies and that. You know, we've actually had a lot of success with that this year. Uh, 
I first got it from Jake Tura out mm -hmm. at uh, Youngstown. Um, you know, I like to give credit where credit's due, and he was kind of the first one I saw really starting to implement those deep, deep range, uh, deep lunge ISOs. Um, we saw a lot of success with that, as well as uh, kind of the old school sissy squat. That was a big, big help for us too. Another one that we've seen things work well with that, like backwards stuff, walking mm -hmm. backwards, sled drags backwards. <clears throat> um, yep, the backwards sled drags were we implemented that with a couple of our guys, and that seemed to really help as well. No, dude, thanks for hopping on and asking a question. That was that was quick. Didn't that was a good first one. Yeah, my Nova kids <laughs> haven't even gotten on yet. One of them just did, so here we go. Um, haven't even gotten into, like, what I was hoping to talk about, and that is, like, since all we've had is time right now, have you had a yeah. chance to reflect, like, anything that you liked, didn't like, things you were successful with, things that helped? Uh, yeah, you know, we've – here and there. Uh, I've been trying to stay busy with some other stuff too, kind of, you know, I've still got some athletes that are, <clears throat> we're supposed to be starting their spring season. Um, you know, I work with men's golf here at University of Rhode Island as well. And, um, so, uh, they're kind of in limbo right now. Um, but obviously the kids are going to still go out and play. So was working on some programming for them, um, while they're at home, my guys, I've really just kind of let them take the next week or two off that was kind of the plan anyways you know whenever we ended up being done um give them a little bit of a break you know we just had a as you know a really long season so um haven't had um haven't quite sat down to kind of organize our our off season um yet uh, we also don't know when that's going to start you know so um who knows if we get our kids back or when we get our kids back um uh so in the next week or so i'll sit down and, and start to kind of reflect on what we did, what we didn't do, things we could have done better. Uh, we're sure that's a pretty long list. Um, but, you know, the one thing I can say that I'll, I could probably hang my hat on is we continue to train hard all year round. Um, that's one thing I've, you know, since I've been here, since season two for me, um, that we've we kind of started implementing right away. Um, and that's not really novel at this point, you know, for across the country. Most, I would say most programs are training pretty hard throughout the year. Um, but, you know, you still get a couple of, uh, teams here and there that go into that kind of quote unquote maintenance mode. Um, I think that's still lingering a little bit in our profession. Um, and, and that's one thing we just don't do, you know, our mindset is we're either getting better or we're getting worse. Um, and, and kudos to my head coach here at university of Rhode Island and, and his kind of our mantra throughout the team was we're just going to come in and get better every single day. Uh, and so we took the same approach in the weight room. Uh, we tried to mirror that. We tried to to mirror that kind of uh, that mantra and that idea of we're just going to take a step forward every single day. Um, and so for us, that meant continuing to train. And that doesn't mean we were chasing numbers and and trying to you know pump our back squat up all year round. But <clears throat> we were always looking to make improvements in some aspect. Um, whether that meant we were getting stronger, but whether that meant we were improving numbers on the force plate, um, yeah, you know, whether that meant we were improving. Uh, movement proficiency, you know, whatever it was, we were trying to continually take that step forward. So that's, that's one thing I could probably hang my hat on is that we were, we were at least always in the mindset of trying to get better and trying to move forward. So that would keep running down that. So, but how did that about like evolve throughout the year? You know, cause you've got different guys pulling different minutes, having different practice responsibilities, having, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if you guys didn't travel anybody or not, but I mean, even that ends up being something that can be a kind of a, a lingering thing that, you know, people overlook. Yeah. So for us, it was a, a unique year in that we only had eight available players all year. 
Um, and it's not like we played with eight. We had 10 or 12 available. We had eight players available. Um, that was it. And we had, you know, four or five of those guys getting really, really high minutes, you know, three or four of them averaging 35 plus. Uh, so <clears throat> this idea of we're going to continue to train hard all year round can be daunting to look at when you've got those kind of guys playing those kind of minutes. Um, so for us, it was really looking for what I called um, opportunities to go green, uh, which is opportunities to go green in the weight room to train, right? So um, some people use red as a hard day, yellow as a medium, green as an easy day. Well, I kind of flipped it on that. I said red was a day, you know, if we're going to build out different programming. Red is a day where uh, we're not doing a lot. It's kind of, you know, for us, it's stop. We're going to have a nice low day. Yellow was still medium, obviously, and green was our go day. We're going to get after it on, on a green day. Um, and so we looked for as many opportunities uh, to, to go green uh, as we could. Um, and that was a little bit easier in our non-conference. Obviously, games are, you know, spread out a little more. Um, so we, we did a bulk of our more intensive training during that non-conference. Um, I think there was one point where we had two weeks between games. And so we took every – we took all advantage of that, of that time frame, you know. Um, so once we got into our conference play, and as you know, as everybody knows, games are, you know, I think we played three games in six days, probably three or four times in the conference, um, which is tough, uh, especially if you're traveling on some of those days, which we typically were. Um, so at that point it was, we did start to back off a little bit, um, as we got towards, you know, middle to late half in the season. Um, but we still always found at least one or two exposures a week. Um, of really getting after it. Um, and again, maybe that was just going two sets of doubles or three sets of singles. Uh, but we were going to try and work up to something decent at least once, hopefully two exposures a week. Um, and like I said, I, I think I think that, you know, paid off for us in the end. Um, you know, I don't have to knock on wood anymore when I say this, but in the past two years, and, and let me preface this with the fact that we had, this is a team effort um, as far as keeping guys healthy. Uh, from top down, from our head coach making great decisions as far as practice plans and having guys, you know, take reps off, um, days off, you know, all that. Our, our athletic trainer doing a phenomenal job of getting guys back from the small things. Um, a little bit of luck involved. And then I also have to think that a lot of what we did training-wise contributed to our success as far as injury risk reduction. Um, in my two years here, we've only had two games missed due to injury. Uh, and one of those was – um, a minor concussion, you know, so we're talking about one soft tissue injury that prevented a game being played in the past two years. Um, I, I think our whole team, our whole support staff and coaching staff can hang our hat on that. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty good. I don't know a lot of people that can say that. And again, that's, that's, that's a, a team effort. Um, by no means is it, is my program, the greatest program in the world. And it, and it, that's the only reason, I mean, we have, we had small things. We got banged up here and there, but our athletic trainer did a phenomenal job of getting guys back. Um, our head coach made, like I said, great decisions as far as practice plans and all that. But uh, I do truly believe that because we continued to take that step forward every day and we continue to try to be stronger, faster, more powerful, move better, that was a decent part of our success as far as keeping guys healthy. Oh, man, I dig it. And I think that on top of that, too, like – there has to be some therapeutic aspect to the things you're doing also. You've got so many guys pulling so many minutes, um, and, which I can't believe I'm going to say this, and probably the most underrated league in the country this year. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, I like to think so. You know, we, you, you mentioned therapeutic and, and, you know, as we got down into the deeper, deeper in the conference, what I kind of did was I, I, I built our days into kind of three different themes, right? So, um, on average, three different themes for our high minute guys. We had what I called a health day, which is going to be a lot more like single leg biased. Um, I'm not going to go deep into unilateral because we'll talk about that a little bit, but single leg biased, um, deeper ranges of motion, slower controlled stuff. So some of that trying to work on some of that tendinopathy stuff. Um, we would call that our health day. And that was typically like a post a game day plus one. Maybe we call it a recovery circuit. Um, you know, we didn't do a whole lot of just lying around on foam rollers. We, we got up and moved uh, to try and kickstart that recovery process. And then we had a work day. Uh, a work day was going to be, um, you know, we'll call it grunt work. Um, you know, some sled, sled stuff, some weighted carries, some, um, yeah, we'll just call it grunt work. I mean, just, just getting after it. And that was more in the non-conference. Um, where we had some opportunities to kind of get in that, we'll call it quote unquote work capacity. Um, some just really super general training. Everything we do is general basketball, but, um, outside of the basketball itself. <clears throat> and then we had a perform day and our, our perform day. Here's a better way to put this. Our grunt work day was more of like a volume day, some hypertrophy work, quote unquote hypertrophy work, um, that higher range, uh, volume work, the higher rep, uh, volume work to try and maintain some muscle mass or, or like I said, try and build some, you know, I hate that word maintain, but, um, and then we had what we call our perform day and that was kind of our go green day, right? Perform is, um, we're going to put these in, I'll say sport conscious ranges of motion. I know you and Alan talked about that a little bit yesterday. And, um, but what we found is we could really push numbers on some of those sport conscious ranges of motion. So we would go some Anderson squats. So squatting from the pins, um, our trap bar deadlifts from, you know, two or three inch blocks, um, bench, uh, bench press from the pins or from the floor, like a floor press, uh, some things like that. Um, some lateral lunges, uh, you know, whatever movement or exercise it was, we would put them in more of a sport conscious position, maybe a position they'd end up on the court, um, at some point. Um, and, and that was going to, we were going to push numbers and or velocities on those days. Right. So those were kind of our three themes we had throughout the, throughout the year. Um, and as we got more towards the, the conference middle of the conference play to end of conference play we really narrowed it down to kind of two days and that was either the health day or the perform day right so we you know if we're playing six games or three games in six days we had a lot of those health days um and maybe one or two exposures of those perform days but that kind of middle of the ground grunt work uh you know volume work we kind of did away with that for a higher minute guys um deep into the season so as you mentioned before, I went on a little tangent there, but as you mentioned before, that, that therapeutic effect um, came a lot from those health days, what we called health days. You know, I, di I didn't want to do a, a typical quote-unquote recovery day where you're just rolling around on foam rollers for 10 minutes and stretching. You know, we wanted to actually do something. So That's a lot like how ours was. <clears throat> like our game, our off day plus one was all like the, the yes to special exercises with, like, it was basically, like, yeses uh, plus the Virginia high-performance stuff, man. Like, the yeah. stuff that I put on Instagram earlier, like, the single-leg stuff, and then let the guys do some, some dumbbell work for their upper body so that they're happy with it. Mm -hmm. And then a primer day right before the game. I mean, it sounds real similar, you know, like, 
push presses, quarter squats, clean pulls, mid thigh. It, it sounds all pretty much the same to me. Yeah. You know what, what, uh, you just mentioned this push press that's actually become, uh, um, uh, that or the push jerk has become such an important movement for us. Um, and I think it's something that, again, I, I'm not a huge believer in sports specific training, but I think the push jerk or push press is a great exercise for basketball players, whether that be with a barbell, dumbbell, kettlebell, whatever bar you want to use. But, I think those two exercises, the push jerk and then the and the push press itself, are phenomenal exercises for guys that are up here all the time. You know, especially if we're going <clears> to <throat> expect bigs to be big and strong. You know, right around the basket in that position all the time, going up and getting rebounds, finishing through contact, whatever it is. Um, obviously, if you want to get good at that stuff, go do it on the court. But I think as far as an exercise that could transfer decently well to that, I think those two are kind of towards the top of my list that I've started implementing a lot more than I used to. Yeah, I use it with our swimmers, too. I like um, – I just like the whole – people get kind of wigged out about swimmers putting a bar over their head, and it's not going to be like they're putting 100 kilos over their head. But if every time you're going to jump off the wall, you're going to extend to there, too, why not get strong with it? Yeah. I, I, we don't have to go deep into swimming here, but I've always been fascinated by overhead sport athletes not training overhead. That doesn't make sense to me. So, no, we won't go down that rabbit hole, though. <laughs> yeah, but I do want you to start running down that unilateral bilateral <clears throat> rabbit hole, though. Yeah. So, you know this this idea was really, and it's not my idea at all. I, I, I won't cl take claim for it. But um, for me, it, it was really born out of just watching my guys in the weight room. Um, you know our profession loves to get split down the middle and people love to be in camps, you know, Olympic camp, I'm an Olympic guy, or I'm a powerlifting guy or whatever it may be. And I'll admit I was an Olympic guy for, you know, the first part of my career um, just because I was a, a Olympic weight, Olympic weightlifter, weightlifter. And, and I love those exercises. And I, I see a lot of value in them as far as um, performance, but I've shifted so far away from wanting to sit in a camp. <clears throat> and I'm just going to ride the fence all day. Um, and, and for me, that's not a, it's not that I don't have conviction enough to sit in a camp. It's just, I believe that you can pull from each camp and create a really well-balanced program because there's good things to pull from every discipline, you know? Um, and so this whole bilateral versus unilateral debate, it, it seems that everyone wants to sit in one or the other, you know? And, and so this idea of switching to, this asymmetrical stance is what I like to call it. Um, Quasi-unilateral is another term. I've heard uh, William, you know, William Wayland over in the oh, UK. Yeah. yeah. Super smart guy. Love his stuff. But uh, unilateral, quasi-unilateral is a term I've, I've heard him say. Um, and him and I have had some great discussions on this and he's got some really good articles about it as well. Uh, much more eloquently put than I could ever put it, but. That's just the accent. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> that's why I'm wearing glasses today. It makes me <laughs> sound smarter. <clears throat> but, um, like I said, it was really born out of watching my athletes struggle with pure unilateral movements in the weight room. Um, and obviously training one limited time is important and I don't want to dismiss that at all, but you know, if we're going to use this argument that, so we use unilateral movements to, to train obviously one limit at a time. And because that's how they work in real life, you know, quote unquote. And um, you know, we want to talk about stabilizer muscles and all that kind of stuff. I'm kind of out on that idea that 
you know, muscles don't know they're stabilizers. They just know to contract and relax. And so uh, I, I think um, I'm jumping around here. I apologize. But so watching athletes struggle with single leg movements in the weight room is so painful for me to watch. And it just seems like a giant waste of time to have someone struggle for weeks on end to nail down a decent body weight single leg hinge, you know, or a walking lunge, you know, whatever it may be. And, and it just really, I just didn't want, you know, time is a commodity in season or just in general these days, because we get cut short on hours. Um, I don't want to waste 15, 20 minutes of a training session of an hour training session, watching a guy hobble around trying to do a single leg RDO with 25 pounds, you know, it seems like a giant waste of time for me. We're not really getting any kind of training adaptation out of that. Um, I'm sorry, but for an athlete that we deal with that can sprint the way they do and jump the way they do and do all those things, a 25 pound single leg RDO is not doing anything for these guys. It's just not. Um, and if our job is to prepare our athletes, you and Alan talked about this yesterday, creating a robust athlete. Um, if our job is to create a robust athlete that can handle the forces and velocities um, that they're going to experience while they're playing, 25-pound single-leg RDL is not going to get it done. And and if I can't get a kid to do it, if I struggle to get a kid to do a, a decent single-leg RDL with just his body weight, can you imagine – what I'm going to see if I try to make him use any kind of substantial load that may actually help prepare him for what he's going to encounter in sport. You know, I don't know if we're ever going to prepare or, you know, reach what they're going to encounter in sport, but if our job is to get him as close as possible, I don't think that that, you know, even I'll say 50 pound dumbbell RDL is going to do it, you know? And so what I started doing is I started giving these guys just slight supports, you know, whether it was a hand support, like a hand check on a, on a, squat rack or a bench um or i put them in an asymmetrical stance like a kickstand stance is what i call it um and all of a sudden you can instantly clean up that pattern and then instantly add load and or velocity to it you know and and you can say well it's not all about well it is it is about being able to produce force through good movement patterns obviously and so if i need my guys to be able to produce force a lot of it to create that robust athlete and improve performance, I need them to load that pattern and I need to be a good pattern. And I can, if I can shorten the amount of time it takes me to teach or to perfect that pattern and shorten the amount of time it takes for me to get to a heavier or a higher force producing pattern, I'm going to do that. You know, if you've ever done a hand supported single leg RDL or a kickstand single or kickstand, you know, asymmetrical stance RDL, it's still very much single leg biased with a slight support because you're able to overload that movement now, you're still working on stability because it's so heavy. You're fighting hard to stabilize. Um, and so the argument that you're getting rid of any kind of stability work, I don't buy it because I've done it and I've had my athletes do it. And it's, it, we're, we're reaping benefits from it almost immediately, you know? So you're able to handle a significantly greater load. Oh, substantially. And that's my point is, okay, you can hobble around with a 25-pound dumbbell with no support and say you're working on stabilizing when in reality you're probably falling and trying to correct yourself, you know, 10, 15 times a set and not getting any real work done. Or you can put a 100-pound dumbbell in an athlete's hand, give them a slight support, 
and now all of a sudden they're they're you've taken just enough instability away to create a really good pattern but you've been able to overload it so that now they're having to fight to stabilize the amount of force they're having to produce does that make sense yeah devil's advocate <clears throat> maybe a spot for both absolutely and and that's the that's the great thing is i haven't completely gone away from pure unilateral movements we do them in our movement prep you know we'll do um vernon griffith has made them really popular these days but the hip airplanes we do a lot i use a lot of his hip airplane um uh variations um another super smart guy that i steal from all the time um and so we'll use some single leg hip airplanes like pure hip hip uh, unilateral patterns um we'll do some um shrimp squats or skater squats whatever people call them these days um you know some single leg squatting movements to a box whatever it may be we'll absolutely do some some pure single leg work in our movement prep Uh, but when it comes to actual um you know performance enhancing exercises we've gone almost exclusively to we have gone exclusively to either asymmetrical stance or single leg bias stance you know and, and i'm not a fan of the argument that sports are played on one leg all the time they're not you know running is done on one leg but if you want to get better at that go run <laughs> you know yeah i can watch 40 minutes of, of big g and langevine battling and say there's a lot of that they're doing on two feet absolutely you go watch if you ask anybody to throw down their nastiest dunk apart from a dude trying to take off from the free throw line usually they're going to load up on two feet for that nastiest dunk they have, you know, um, or if it is on two feet, it's also probably going to be in some type of asymmetrical stance. If you go watch those jumps, mm-hmm. a lot of time they'll take off in an asymmetrical stance. I've been watching, you know, right now they're throwing replays out on ESPN and, and sports center on Instagram of, you know, Blake Griffin's dunks and all that kind of stuff. And apart from like a, a, a breakaway high speed dunk, you know, it's usually done off of two feet, you know, especially when there's people around and you're in traffic. And so it's like, all right, well, that's done in an asymmetrical stance or two feet in, uh, in contact with the ground at some point. Um, if you're watching guys on defense and, you know, defensive sliding and making cuts, um, most of that's done with two feet in contact with the ground in some capacity. You know, again, I, I believe I don't believe that sports are played on one leg. I think sports are played in asymmetrical stances. Um, with with both feet in contact okay. with the ground in some capacity. Now, obviously, there there's always exceptions to the rule. And if you go, you know, watch high speed cuts, high speed angular cuts, those are done on one leg for the most part. But again, if you want to prepare the body to be able to do that, go do that. <laughs> what we're doing in the weight room is probably not going to com- like uh, prepare them for that. And if there is something we can do in the weight room to help prepare them for that, it's not a, you know. 10% body weight split squat. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's because that's a high force, high velocity cut. Uh, so you need to be doing something in the weight room that's going to prepare them for that. So that means you either need to load something to produce a lot of force or do it quickly. And it's really hard to do that stuff on purely one leg with no kind of, with no external support. I think a lot of that single leg stuff too is going to end up turning into like multi-level ISOs in the real, rear near future. Mm-hmm. Someone like, I think Doc Sof, I don't know if I can say this. The force hooks people, because I don't know if it's hers or not. So I, I think it's hers. But, the like, that force hooks, like, people being able to set, like what Alex Natera has talked about with, like, 
different levels of isometric contractions and like how you can set your feet because I just think that you know and we've talked about this like people love to talk about like force absorption mm-hmm. and I think the only person that any of us know that could hold the infinity glove and actually absorb force is Sean Fantuzzi so <laughs> I don't think anybody actually is absorbing force here I no, think you standing it mm-hmm. being able to, to go the other way I mean everybody's heard Buddy Morris's rant about ground reaction forces and sprinting versus squatting and yada 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 but I think that that because like at the end of the day like hand supported or not you're not going to be able to move as much as you can just push there for like three to five seconds mm-hmm. and I really think that like I think Alan's dead on that we need to do all of these things in really big ranges of motion early and I think mm-hmm. you're dead on with you know, hitting both ends of that, like, single leg strength spectrum. But I think eventually, though, we do need to do things that are like, we've done all this general stuff to prep the tissue and the joints. Now let's find things that are at these angles so that, like, when we do have to do something that we don't necessarily have ourselves prepared for, we can do it and be safe. And I think the more we look at stuff, like, you know, you brought up Jake earlier, he's talking a lot about, like, the triangle. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and we've seen that a trillion times. I mean, like, look yeah. at basketball, like, every jump shot a kid takes. Every single one. Bruce and, and I, I were just like, talking about this at, at A-10s. Uh, like, why is that? A, why did that start? I have no idea. Because but, that's what people say you blow your knee out at. Right. But uh, my point is, like, why did the jump shot ever get to that point, like, where, where people do that? And so it starts making you think that, like, okay, the textbook tells us what we were taught in the classroom tells us, go fix it, go fix it. If I try and tell... Uh, Jeff Doughton doesn't really do it. If I try and tell Fats Russell to go change his knees when he sc- or shoot, what? I'm going to ruin that kid's shot. First of all, he's not going to do it. Second of all, I will get laughed at. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that's this is not what's going to, you know, not everyone does it, you know, but like the guys that do, they do it really, really well. And I've never seen anyone tear an ACL during a jump shot. So it's like, why would I go fix that? That doesn't make any sense. Well, and I wonder, I guess the next <clears> question is, is it because it's a skill that's been practiced and they're so used to doing it? Mm-hmm. And they're so like they're ready for that action. Is it possibly these actions when we're not ready? Is it more of the like, oh shit of the moment and your body wasn't prepared to be in that situation, so something keeps going, as opposed to, oh, this is the pattern that I've been taught, step in, buckle a little, come back, sh- splash. Right. You know what I mean? I like mm-hmm. I wonder if I mean like we, we talk about how important training the nervous system is and how important you know, the, the lump three feet above our butt is when it comes to sports. I wonder if that's actually the primary injury reducer. Because we also know, too, right, that muscles can't fire fast enough to, quote-unquote, prevent an ACL injury. Like, if mm-hmm. it's going to happen, it's going to happen. The, the nervous system doesn't fire fast enough. Is it maybe then because the body is actually programming these, even, like, on certain cuts, right? You see people with their feet turned off goofy, their knees are going one way and their hips are going another and their ankles this way and it's like but they're fine is it because their mind said okay we're gonna go left here and their body goes we'll figure it out and we're safe as opposed to "Uh oh there's somebody here or i got nudged a little bit oh uh oh wasn't ready for that yeah i'm saying Mm -hmm. yeah that's probably a question for someone a lot smarter than me um, but yeah, I, you know, a question for somebody that like researches this stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> but but I but I'm I'm on with your with your train of thought there. There are certain things, and I, you know what? I just had a discussion with um, a former intern of mine about this. I think 
the single hardest thing that we have to do as strength and conditioning practitioners is determining what to fix and what not to fix. You know, um, I learned this from <clears throat> in my discussions with Sean Wendell, uh, Indiana Pacers strength yeah. coach. And you want to talk about a smart guy, mm-hmm. man. Um, if you ever get a chance to, to talk to him, dude, just unbelievably intelligent. Um, but we, one thing I learned from him a long time ago uh, when I was working with him is um, what's right and what's wrong. It's so hard to tell. You know, the textbook says this, but this guy's been doing this for 15 years in the league and he's fine. Well, you're probably going to cause more harm fixing that than good, you know, or or look at a guy's ankles. Um, You know, especially with basketball players, we have all kinds of jacked up feet and ankles and, 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 you take a guy who's got very little dorsiflexion, but they're the springiest dude you've ever seen, you know, and, and part of what makes them so elastic and springy and bouncy is probably that lack of range of motion in the ankle, right? That whole complex, that lower leg complex has turned into a, a spring that's just ready to explode. And so you go, okay, for, for reducing the risk of injury's sake, maybe I want to improve that range of motion just a little bit, but I also don't want to screw anything up. I don't want to make him less bouncy, less elastic, you know. And we, I think you end up seeing that a lot in sports. You get kids who come out of – or in, in basketball in particular, you get kids who come out of high school and then their, you know, their their vert or their three-quarter court speed goes down after two or three years of strength and conditioning. And there's probably a lot of other factors involved in that, but I think it, it potentially could be traced back to we tried to fix things that didn't need fixed. Mm-hmm. And so I go back and forth on that all the time when I'm screening new athletes. I've got freshmen coming in or, you know, <clears throat> I don't do a whole lot of, you know, um, standardized movement screen tests other than I just watch my guys move every day, all day. Um, but you go, all right, this guy's ankles aren't great. This guy's hip internal rotation isn't great. This guy's sh- – I mean, not to pick on the kid, but Jeff Downton, I mean, you've seen his shoulders, <laughs> you know, and so – it's like, yeah, but he's a, he's a bucket. Oh, he's a, he's a walking bucket. Yeah. And it's like, well, <clears throat> I could work all day to improve that, but do I need to, you know? So I, I've come to the conclusion that when we're talking about, you know, like I said, one of the hardest things to do is to figure out what to fix and what not to fix. I believe that you should, in my opinion, <clears throat> what I've figured out is what I think I've figured out is that I'm, I need to give them the range of motion that they need to be able to play the sport and then maybe just a tad bit more as a worst case scenario reserve. Does that make sense? hundred percent. Yeah. So it's like, all right, this is what they need to play the sport. Maybe try and get them a little bit more so that if they do end up in a bad spot, they're probably okay. Um, but other than that, I don't, you know, I used to be a, again, I'm going to, I'm a weightlifter. I squat ass to grass. That's how I do things. And, and I used to think all athletes need to be able to do it too. Um, and I'm a big believer, you know, in four inch motion training. Absolutely. But, you know, does heels touching or does, does butt touching his heels, uh, you know, compared to three or four inches above his heels, does that really matter? I mean, is he getting below parallel? Is he, is it a decent looking, sc- even below parallel? I mean, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, let me give him the range of motion that he needs. If he can squat all the way down. Great. If he, if he can't go below 90 degrees, that's, that's probably a, something we need to address a little bit. Um, but, um, even then I, I, 
I don't know. <laughs> you know. I'm with you, bro. So. so it's so it's so funny how things have. I forgot who I was talking to, but um, it was about like, you know, what's one of the big things that's changed in your philosophy in the past, you know, since I started, and it's it's. This sounds probably cliche at this point, but the whole it depends, answer. And again, if you ha- if you do give that as an answer, you have to give some context to it. You have to be able to back that up. Like it depends on this. Here's a solution if it is this or this, right? But it very much depends. You know, we get questions: How deep should I squat? You know, uh, should I go bilateral or unilateral? Should I do the Olympic lifts or not? Should I? it depends, man? Now it depends on these factors, and we need to be able to point these out and address them. But it does depend. So yeah, I mean, like you want to talk about Olympic lifting? It's like. No offense, Ham. If you I hate the Olympic lifts. I don't know what you're talking about. But it's like Olympic lifting. Well, are, is Chase Campbell your coach? Is Matt Delancey your coach? Is Jay DeMeo your coach and Todd Hamill <clears> your coach? Because if the first two are, you probably should. If I am, eh, we may not. We may not be doing a lot of catching. Right. You know? mm-hmm. like, it, it's, it depends on who you're with. You know, like I, I remember. <clears> it was, um, Gosh, darn it. I mean, the whole season feels like it was two days and then 10 years. But it was sometime right after Christmas, somebody put a question on Twitter where they were like, who's like the one coach someone should do like a mentorship with if they had like an internship or whatever? I sat there and I thought about it. I'm like, most of these programs now require like two to three internships. And I started writing out like what a path would be for someone. It'd be like, you know, like, step one, I think, would be, like, you would want to start with a guy like Alan, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Alan Bishop. Because it's, like, you are going to learn what it means to train. You yeah. are going to learn simple techniques and, and the Pollock principles about tempo and why that's important and all of these things. Like he, does them, a, he does them so well, too. Right. And he gets his guys <clears throat> to do it really well. So that would be yeah. a great place to start. And then it's, like, but then you need to know like the weightlifting side of it so like matt or you you know like people that have done really well i mean like i don't know if you've ever seen the video that delancey has of caleb dressel who's like the fastest guy in the world swimming mm-hmm. happened like a, a 120 kilo clean off of blo- off of blocks i did it's see that like, yeah it's unbelievable yeah absolutely like, you know and then it's like well you need to get somebody after that who's going to be like on the super sciencey side of it to like tie it all together and bring all these next things. So I'm like, so like a guy like Nate Brookerson, mm-hmm. you no, know? or like even like Tony Carney, like would be like great people that are like, yeah, super sophisticated and like looking at all the numbers and how they break it down. Tony's and, super smart, man. Yeah. <clears throat> like he's also low key. One of the funniest guys I know. Oh yeah. Totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, man. So it's like, you know, looking at that, like there's so many, like, it depends. It even, like, would depend on, like, who you would learn from. Like, what, yeah. what do those people do? Like, what kind of system do you play? You know, like, like if you're a team, like, 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 I'm sure, like, Mike at Cincinnati would have a different thing to say just because of, like, how you see plays, man. You know, like, yeah. and, you know, I'm sure that the guy like. Uh, What's up, Tyler? Like, the guy like, uh, like, Rock. At St. Louis, mm-hmm. right? Who learned under Mike Curtis, but they play a totally different style than UVA. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's all sorts of that. That depends. Mm-hmm. Even that depends. Right. 
Yeah, if, if there's any <clears throat> like really young strength coaches out there listening, uh, the biggest advice I can I can give is, um, and I, I'm not the I think there's a lot of people that have come out and said this, but if you're if you're looking to get into the profession is, uh, don't necessarily go to a don't don't pick a school based on the logo, pick a school or a program based on the people. You know, I was lucky enough to go to um, Ball State University, um, which isn't the biggest name in strength and conditioning, although we've got a pretty extensive network of strength coaches. It should be, it should be yeah. It's one of the, it's like, I think either the first or second human performance laboratory in the country, but um, great professors and all that. But I, I learned under Jason Roberson, who doesn't have social media, so he's not a big name out there, but he's a, a super, super smart guy. One of the best people I've ever met in my life. Um, he's turned in, uh, actually one of my uh, buddies, Cole Pittsford, the head strength coach at Wright State. He was a Ball State grad too. He just joined in on the, Stop on the yeah, um, but um you know, Jason Roberson, who I think is, is by far one of the best strength coaches in the profession, and you just don't know him because he's not out on social media, you know, pitching stuff all day long. Um, but I was lucky to work for him and, and to, to get to, uh, you know, work with him and his assistant, Mandy Harrison, and phenomenal strength coaches and better people who have such an eclectic background in what they do. They kind of opened me up. You know, I was a little bit stubborn in that I just wanted to do Olympic weightlifting stuff all the time, so that's on me. It's not on them. But um, – you know, it really challenged me and opened up my mind to, hey, you got to look at things differently and you can't just go down this one, you know, this one avenue. You know, you've got to have a roadmap of 10 different ways to get there um, because, you know, this one this one road isn't always going to work. Uh, so you need to have option B, C, D, E, you know what I mean? Um, and then to work for a guy like, like Sean Wendell and who is just stupid smart. I mean, um, he's actually – uh, we go back to this the quasi state or quasi unilateral stuff. He's the very first person I saw with that uh, with an exercise like that for a hinging pattern. I actually got that kickstand RDL from him some seven years ago, um, and just kind of stored it away in the toolbox and brought it back out when I started to see some of this stuff going on and and um, started to kind of change my thoughts on unilateral training. But um, you know that whole it depends. If you can say that and then have a bunch of different variables to pick from and choose from and make your decision off of like that comes from learning from a lot of different people. You know, it comes from learning from and, and being self-aware enough to go, all right, I'm already pretty good at this stuff. I need to go learn from stuff that I don't know about. Even if I don't agree with it, I've got to go learn, you know, um, like the one by 20 thing. I had never done the one by 20 up until like, a year and a half ago, in my mind, I'm going, oh, one by 20, there's no way. Like, one set, like, no, I can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. I don't have time to coach. Like, and guess what? I started, I asked, I asked you a little bit about it. I asked Chris McCormick down at FAU a little bit about it. I started learning about it. I implemented it with my golf team this fall. Phenomenal results. It was awesome. And now it's in my toolbox that I can pull out at any time, you know? Um, and so, and that's just an evolution that, it t took me a while to kind of come to throughout my career is, all right, man, you got to go learn from other people on things you don't agree with, you know, at first, um, just to help kind of build that toolbox. And so long story short, short, um, you know, if you're a young coach out there, if there's, and I'm still a young coach myself, but if there's any advice I can give is it's learn from as many people as you can. And if you're going to go to grad school or you're going to do an internship, you know, think outside the box, don't just go to, you know, so-and-so because, you love powerlifting or because you love weightlifting or whatever it may be, 
you know, go to the program that's going to help develop you best um, as a whole and not just that one avenue, you know? Oh, man. Well said, brother. Well said. I don't think I can do anything with that. That's like, <laughs> that's just like drop it, walk away. But, man, I'm glad you're doing good, bro. <clears throat> glad you, guys are, you guys are starting to warm up up there a little bit, right? Uh, a little bit. It's been raining here all day. We've had a, I've had a couple of days to get out on the golf course, good working on my game a little bit. Good for you. Yeah, man. But, yeah, man, it's – Appreciate your time, brother. Always great catching up. Always great to hear that you're doing awesome, man. And we'll be in touch. Yeah, absolutely, man. Hopefully, uh, hopefully all these conferences can um, still go on this summer. You know. Yeah, you know. What? I guess I'll say that now because I've been asked a lot. At this point, like I understand like the landscape of everything going on. Like, trust me, like we were in the middle of it. Like, right. The, when it all went down, we were we were in the middle of it. Yes, we were. <laughs> um, but let's. We're going to wait before we make a decision, right? Like it's, uh, yep. we're talking July 16th and 17th. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to, we're going to make sure our, you know, T's are crossed and we dot our I's and make sure everything's good and then figure out what we're going to do. But, um, yeah, I'm a little nervous, man. I, I mean, obviously you're, the, you know, your spot down in Richmond and then, um, you know, I'm supposed to be presenting at the, I'll give a little plug here, but a presenting at the high oh. performance symposium in, in Vegas in May and, you know, that's a huge opportunity I'm looking forward to. And uh, obviously, health and safety are our number one concerns. But, you know, just hoping all this stuff gets taken care of so that we can still meet up and, and have some fellowship and some learning and, and some good times, you know. No doubt, man. We'll keep you all in the loop. But appreciate you, homie. Good to see you. Thanks for being on. All right, brother. Great seeing you, too. We'll talk soon, man. Yeah, man. Cheers. All right, later, bud. And a huge thanks to Chase Campbell for spending the time with us. Guys, just open, honest, candid sharing. What a, what a great IG Live that conversation was. And, you know, getting into the whole hand-supported versus, you know, freestanding single-leg work. I mean, that's that's a great little discussion that I think is going to be the next thing that we really start diving into here in the world of performance. Uh, I can't thank Chase enough for being so open, honest, and candid in his sharing. This was absolutely awesome stuff. And if you did enjoy the talk... Please share it through the social media outlet of your choice, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. As always, we're just trying to get the best information out there to all the great coaches that we can. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then. (laughs) 